0: A very warm welcome to St Paul's Cathedral and to this Sunday Forum organised by our Adult Learning Department. I'm James Milne, Minor Canon and Sacrist and a member of the Liturgy and Worship Team. It gives me great pleasure to welcome this afternoon Dr Andrew Davison, who is the Starbridge Lecturer in Theology and Natural Sciences in the University of Cambridge and Canon Philosopher at St. Albans Cathedral. Following training as a scientist, he read Tripos in Theology and Religious Studies at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, and subsequently completed a PhD in Philosophical Theology. He is the author of several books, including Care for the Dying, The Love of Wisdom, An Introduction to Philosophy for Theologians, Why Sacraments, and his newest book, Blessing, which he will be discussing today. He is also a regular contributor to the Church Times and the Times Literary Supplement. Dr. Davison will speak for about 45 minutes this afternoon, and then we'll have time for questions and answers. And after that, you'll have the chance to buy a copy of his books, and I highly recommend that you do so. Would you please join me in welcoming Dr. Andrew Davison?
1: Thank you for that welcome. How does blessing feature in your particular church? Well, there's probably a blessing at the end of services, and we bless the couple at weddings, and the Eucharist is a kind of blessing. But that might be all. Although in many churches, all sorts of things that feature in our patterns of worship are also blessed. Ashes and palms, oils, water for baptism, maybe the Easter candle, offerings at harvest festival. The list grows quickly. But how about at home? Grace at meals is the most widespread example. In this talk, I want to explore what's going on when we bless things and people and places, and I want to commend the practice of blessing as a way in which a great deal of what Christians believe can be ingrained or woven into the pattern of our lives. I'll start with part of our gospel reading from Mark last Sunday. When the Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus, they noticed that some of his disciples were eating with defiled hands, that is, without washing them. So they asked Jesus, why do your disciples not live according to to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Then Jesus called the crowd and said to them, Listen to me, all of you, there is nothing outside a person that, by going in, can defile, but the things that come out are what defile. That reading challenges us to think about matter and how we treat the world around us as physical stuff. Is it somehow unclean and unworthy, defiling? That would have been quite a widespread outlook in the ancient world. Jesus said, no. A great thing about our Christian practice of blessings, and it's also important in Judaism, is that blessings treat material things with reverence. If that sounds insignificant, think of some of the other ways in which matter can be treated. We might, for instance, today hear prominent atheists, for instance, telling us that matter is all there is, They might claim scientific authority for that, although I find it totally unconvincing. On the other hand, we might meet religious people, and Christians, sometimes among them, who imply that only spiritual things are fully real, maybe real at all. Think of Mary Baker Eddy and the uh, group called Christian Scientists, and okay, not many Christians go that far. But even if they do accept that both matter and spirit are real, the sense is common that matter and spirit don't have much in common, much to do with one another, that matter and spirit are disconnected or even opposed to one another, the dualist position. None of those options really give matter its due. Obviously, the who cares about matter position, idealism, is no great friend of matter, but neither really, I think, is materialism, which makes matter everything. Because if we put the sole emphasis on matter, we leave it rather dead and cold. It's just stuff, unhaunted by meaning, value, mystery, holiness. And notice that the rather common dualist perspective, never the twain shall meet, is actually rather like that too. It doesn't deny the reality of matter, it just hives matter off from spirit and leaves spirit with what really counts in contrast with meaning and value and mystery and holiness. Unfortunately, Christianity is often dualistic when it comes to matter, despite all that the Bible and our great theologians have taught us. However, I think it's generally a good characteristic of Anglicanism to want to defy dualisms of all sorts, like any sealed off opposition between the sacred and the secular, between religion and politics, or family and priesthood, or grace and nature. The Christian practice of blessing things is part of our defiance of that dualism, and it chimes with a deep conviction of mine that actually there's hardly anything more spiritual than matter. Okay, that's rather abstract and philosophical. What really got me interested in blessing and blessing things was an encounter, a conversation over an espresso, as it happened, in the college bar at the Dominican University in Rome, the Angelicum. I was there as an exchange student while I was training for the priesthood. The lectures were double length and so they were humanely chopped in two for a coffee break. And so I stood there, it being an Italian bar, I stood there having an espresso with the lecturer, who was the prior. The morning's topic had been blessing. The course as a whole had been about the sacraments, and they were great lectures. But his account of blessing rather worried me. It was as if praising the sacraments inevitably meant playing down everything else. Blessings are not sacraments, and the lecturer had had stressed all that blessings are not. Not being sacraments, they're not guaranteed, he said. They don't unite us to Christ. They don't leave a lasting stamp upon our soul, and so on. Sacraments are efficacious, and by this comparative logic, it seemed, blessings are not. So, in the bar, over my espresso, I expressed my concern with friendly forcefulness. His account of blessings, I said, was empty and Zwinglian, after the Genevan reformer who had so strongly, uh, sorry, Zurich reformer, who had so strongly discounted the supernatural efficacy of the sacraments, leaving them rather like enacted sermon illustrations. I would rather, said the prior, be empty and Zwinglian, than magical and superstitious, like you. So there we stood with smiles on our faces, he, the Roman Catholic, branded by me as Zwinglian, and I, from the Church of England, branded by him as superstitious. That exchange opened my eyes to blessings as a significant subject, and a look in the college library showed that little had been written about it at any length or for a general audience. Okay, we bless things and people and places, but why? What are blessings about? With three quarters of an hour for this talk, I'm going to have to focus on one or two angles. But for the sake of the bigger picture, let's say that blessings are about thanksgiving and praise. They're about offering and dedication They're about recognition and prayer. They're about protection and redemption. They're about celebration and proclamation. So thanksgiving and praise, offering, dedication, recognition and prayer, protection and redemption, celebration and proclamation, you'll be glad to hear I'm not gonna cover all of that this afternoon. By the time we've surveyed what blessings are about, I reckon we've covered most of the big topics in Christian theology. I put the table of contents of my book on the back of the handout, and you'll see there hints of most of what gets called systematic theology. God, creation, Christology, sin, redemption, the church, mission, the life of the world to come. It's like a kind of mini systematics approached through the angle of blessing. As I say, there's a lot to cover, but certain themes bind parts of that list together. One is the idea that blessing is about speaking well. It's about speaking well of God and speaking well of his creatures. That's where the Latin word benedicare comes from, speaking well, bene, dicare. And the same is also true of an important biblical word for blessing, the Greek eulogain, again, speaking well. So have speaking well in mind and it will make more sense when you read in the Bible that we are to bless the Lord, for instance. It's not about making God more holy, blessing him in that sense, that seems a tricky thing to do. It's about speaking well of God, about recognising God's holiness and greatness and speaking well of it, blessing the Lord. I thought I'd focus on two related themes, since we only have so much time. On the one hand, we have recognition and praise and thanksgiving, speaking well of Creator and creation. We might call it the cheerful side of blessing. And on the other hand, we have beseeching. Beseeching God because we recognise that nothing is quite as it should be. That pairing means that blessing takes seriously both the cheerful doctrine of creation and the doctrine of the fall. A blessing, always seeks some inescapable element of restoration, of elevation, of rescuing from profanity. And while we will not let profanity have the last word, we cannot ignore it. Blessings do note that all is not entirely well with the world. We find that, even, for instance, in the recognition that there are things and situations that we should not, and perhaps cannot, bless. Many Christians would find a certain obscenity in the sight of a priest blessing a bomb or a missile. We can't imagine blessing a loan shark's office in a part of the world where they're preying on poor people. The Lutheran scholar Gordon Lathrop puts this really well. He names these two aspects of blessing from two principal features of the Eucharist, we might say the two principal aspects. On the one hand, he says there's remembering, and that's the celebratory side, and on the other side, there's calling down. He gives them Greek names, anamnesis and epiclesis, remembering, calling down. And these line up with blessing as thanksgiving and blessing as beseeching, and each has its proper place. This is how Lathrop puts it. The thanksgiving should be honest about the goodness of the earth and its structures, the beseeching should insist on remembering those who are outside such goodness, blowing a hole in any status quo." And those ideas are found interwoven throughout church history. So, Ambrose of Milan, for instance, described a blessing, the order's reversed here, as the conferral of sanctification and the rendering of thanks. So, calling out to God for something, sanctification, and recognising something, the rendering of thanks. And I think that by becoming people who bless and are blessed, and a church that blesses and is blessed, we are taught to look at the world in these terms. We are taught to live lives of thankfulness and beseeching. There's a lot to blessing things and being blessed. On the one hand, we acknowledge what's already true. We acknowledge all the good things of the world and we acknowledge that they come from God. But blessings also point forwards, and they demand something of us. I think even just to recognise that things come from God already means that we can't go on using them any old way. For instance, we might bless a home, thanking God for it. But if we do, we also commit ourselves to using it in a Christian way, as a place of hospitality, for instance. One way to put this is to say, that every blessing is a sort of consecration. Let's be ever so slightly more practical and think about blessing today in the church around us. If we were to look at where the theme of blessing is prominent, we'd probably find two different kinds of setting, two rather different kinds of setting. On the one hand, independent, charismatic and Pentecostal churches, and on the other, rather liturgical churches, Catholics and Anglo-Catholics and the Orthodox. Well, I mention the independent, charismatic and Pentecostal churches because of what's often called the prosperity gospel. The, The idea that the Christian life is closely linked to material blessings, that God rewards the faithful with wealth and prosperity. If you want an introduction to this significant movement within contemporary Christianity, look at Kate Bowler's historical survey called, simply, Blessing. It's beautifully written. It surveys its field really well. One of her best points is to say this is a mixed picture, that there are more than one way of living by a prosperity gospel approach. She points to a distinction between what she calls hard and soft prosperity preaching, So the soft version sees faith as the cure for material need, whereas the hard version, as she puts it, goes further and sees lack of faith as the cause of material need. And how do you show the faith that will turn things around for you? Financially, you give bigger offerings to the church. Well, I'm pretty critical of that way of thinking. Just think of the martyrs. They are our great Christian heroes, but their faith didn't bring them earthly prosperity and success. Or think of the Beatitudes and who it is that Jesus calls blessed. There are huge problems with associating faithfulness with prosperity, but I don't think that we should turn our back on the prosperity gospel too smugly. After all, Christianity is the religion of creation, the incarnation, the physical resurrection, of the naked clothed and the hungry fed, and not of disembodied spirits. Prosperity preachers are right that the Bible is full of images of abundance, of people living out their lives to old age and happiness, within a flourishing community, all their needs supplied. The problem is just that they forget what other biblical traditions recognise, often with searing realism, that the righteous do not always flourish. They forget that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. And yes, the phrase, strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well, does place more emphasis on things than is often acknowledged. But to set our heart primarily on these things would be to turn the passage on its head. Theological criticisms of the prosperity gospel aren't difficult to make, and in their own way, they're entirely necessary. But such criticisms only really ring true if those who make them are also willing to play their part in the church's work to alleviate poverty. Christ was not oblivious to material suffering, and neither should his church be. For all its faults, many have found in the prosperity movement an affirmation that it's not the business of the faith to keep them under. I'd say that the prosperity gospel movement is least askew when it lines up with the basic human desire for the necessities of life, for oneself and those under one's care, but that it is most askew when it substitutes luxury for holiness and invests itself in the abstraction of money, rather than in the more tangible and substantial goods of human life. That's one way in which blessing features in the church at the moment through the, uh, the uh, prosperity gospel. But that isn't the only way in which the place of blessing in the church is contested today. Sometimes the subject has met benign neglect, but on other occasions, blessing has aroused outright hostility or at least suspicion. In his now classic study, Blessing in the Bible and the Life of the Church, Klaus Westermann pointed this out. The focus of the opposition he diagnosed was the claim that thinking too much about blessings distracts us from thinking about redemption. Well, I want to deny very strongly that redemption and blessing are fundamentally intention. And I think that's worth saying and thinking about because it relates to a very significant division in the church today, and perhaps especially in the Church of England. The division, the argument, the debate that's going on between a focus on mission and a focus on ministry. Ministry, and I ought to put it in scare quotes, in this unhelpfully polarized and one-dimensional account is all about the joys and trials of life it cements attachment to this world and its patterns, and blessing belongs there. In contrast, pioneers who reject old models based on ministry, often uh, seem to be blessing just so, uh, rejecting just such an aspect of blessing, although it might not be given that name. They want the church to preach repentance, not blessing, and urge us not to think about this world, but rather about the world that is to come. I admit that it's possible to preach blessing without redemption, cheap grace as Bonhoeffer called it. It's possible for us to get enthusiastic about blessing things and people and places and to forget sin and judgement or salvation. But I don't think that's the only way or inevitable. For one thing, being out there Offering to bless people and their lives is a wonderful way for the Church to make links, to open up opportunities between people in their everyday concerns and the God whom the Church proclaims. So far from this being in contrast with the message of redemption, blessing can provide an opening for that message and be part of the way in which it takes hold. I'll come back to that later. All the same, with blessings we do walk a tightrope in relation to the life of the world to come. On the one hand, we shouldn't act as if the kingdom has already come in all its fullness, but on the other, neither should we defer every aspect of that kingdom to a coming world sealed off from this one. Instead, we pray and look for the coming of the kingdom whilst also celebrating and working for whatever anticipation or first fruits might be possible. So blessing need not be an uncritical endorsement of the world as we find it. It need not even evade the apocalyptic note we read in Paul or the gospels or elsewhere. Blessing celebrates and hallows all the good we find in the world, but it also acknowledges and seeks the eruption of the coming kingdom. I think there are all sorts of ways in which the practice of blessing Proclaims the gospel and its kingdom. Just consider, for instance, a sort of countercultural edge that we bless all that constitutes the basic and simple means of life, we bless home and food and so on, rather than luxuries, which are less worthy of blessing. So homes receive the dignity of being blessed, large plasma televisions do not. <laughs> or consider that we refuse to bless any enterprise which stands against the common good. Consider also that we bless fields and rivers and seas, and in that way we confess that provision for what we need for life does not lie entirely in our own hands, but comes from the hand of God and his providence. And in that way, blessing and that recognition is deeply subversive in a culture that prizes mastery, not least in technological forms. So yes, the message of Jesus burst upon the world in an unsettling way, and aspects of that message warn us against approaching the Christian task as one of caretaking. If blessing belongs to the cycle of the natural order, as it often does with marriages and births and funerals, then we have to contend with Christ's injunction to let the dead bury their own dead. We can't bless the world glibly but neither should we limit ourselves only to recruiting souls for the life of the world to come. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, as Paul has it. And turning our back on blessing might leave us guilty of either of two big heresies. We might be Marcionite, for instance, and write off the Old Testament with all its pattern of blessings. Or we might be Gnostic, writing off the material world and the flesh and the family as somehow unworthy of being blessed. You don't need to be entirely committed to following Thomas Aquinas in every theological matter to value his central maxim maxim, that the effect of grace does not abolish nature, but perfects it. We might remember Christ saying that he had come not to abolish the old religious order, the law, but to fulfil it. And there's plenty of blessing in the law. Jesus said that he had come to bring life and life in all its fullness. And the example of his own life shows that he did not stand at odds with what human beings down the ages have considered to constitute fullness and wanted to bless. He ate and drank. He performed his first miracle at a wedding. He blessed children. All that for me means we should reject the idea that blessing and proclaiming the gospel are in conflict. They represent two aspects of the Christian vision that can helpfully complement and perfect one another. Just think how the gospel of grace shines forth in so many aspects of blessing, some of which I've already mentioned. But another one would be that in the church, blessings are never sold. Christians might take that for granted, but there are other religious traditions and folk traditions of magic where they are. The freedom with which blessings are bestowed itself bears witness to the gratuity of the gospel. So blessing is nothing if it is not part of the mission of the church, and the mission is nothing if it does not come to those who receive it as a blessing. That picks up my two themes of thanksgiving and invocation. That is to say, an element of that which is good and its acknowledgement, and an element of acknowledgement of what needs to be put right. An act of blessing isn't just about celebration, it also bears witness to our need for redemption and asks for it. In fact, maybe even just remembering with celebration and thanksgiving today has much to do with mission. Simply to celebrate creation at all might be countercultural, and certainly has been during certain periods of history. Emphasis on the goodness of materiality already puts us beyond the ambit of some of the world's religious traditions down history, which connects us back to the themes we considered at the very beginning about the status of matter. To insist that everyone in the world and all that we have, not least our prosperity, our gifts, and not our own independent fabrication, is, I suppose, to add insult to injury as far as a certain individualist, libertarian mindset is concerned. We remember that God's work is the ultimate precondition for anything we do. The offertory prayers in many Eucharistic liturgies bear witness to this, that God is the origin of all things, and that his gifts are mediated through the work of many ordinary people. The priest takes bread and wine and says, perhaps, something like this. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, through your goodness we have this bread to offer, which earth has given, this wine to offer, the fruit of the vine, both of which human hands have made. Blessing then belongs to the Christian proclamation. And we're not only talking about the content of evangelism here. Blessing can also open up opportunities for that proclamation. And we might think here not particularly of the sort of blessings that typically are taken up only by Christians, the blessing of ministries or the blessing of a pilgrimage, but rather of those blessings that are performed out in the open or away from the gathered worshiping life of the church. So in some rural places, the old practice of blessing fields on Rogation Sunday has been taken up. Or we might think of the blessing of an area with a procession on Corpus Christi, or the inaugural blessing of some civic event or monument, or the blessing of a house because the occupants, who have maybe rarely been to church, feel disquieted there. They're all ways in which, through blessing, the life and message of the church spills out into the world. So, a dichotomy between blessing and redemption is a false dichotomy. And that is shown, most of all, in what is the default setting for blessings, which is the Eucharist. And also that many blessings proclaim redemption through the use of water as a conscious link to baptism with all it conveys about the death and resurrection of Christ. Or the link to redemption is shown even in the characteristic gesture by which blessings are given, the sign of the cross, the great sign of redemption. If blessings are typically associated with the Eucharist, with baptism through water, with the crucifixion through the sign of the cross, as they typically are in the Catholic West and Orthodox East, then the wedge between blessing and salvation is pretty hard to insert. It's a perverse disjunction, as Jürgen Moltmann pointed out with reference to his own native language of German. Here's Moltmann. The German word, to make holy, to hallow, to sanctify, always has something to do with hylan, healing. And so also in many languages that show that healing has to do with being made whole. In English, holy and whole are also connected, and not just phonetically. So the sanctification of life includes the healing of life that is sick, and the becoming whole of a life that has become divided and split. That's where the quotation ends. Blessing occupies both of these registers, hallowing and making whole. And that also is the work of redemption, to make whole, to heal, to sanctify. The work of redemption is ultimately to restore us to a state of blessedness, and indeed to confer upon us a state of blessedness far beyond anything we could imagine or had before. And here, blessing and redemption go hand in hand. For the moment, there is a proper sense in which they need to balance and complement each other. Maybe in this age between the resurrection and the second coming, the emphasis is on redemption, first of all. But ultimately, redemption is for the sake of blessing. Okay, wrapping up. How then do blessings work? Well, I guess Christians have said that their efficacy is not least that they're prayers, and that's where I immediately disagreed with that lecturer over efficacy. I said, well, they're prayers, they're enacted prayers, and we tend to think prayers have a certain efficacy. But there are other things to be said, and that really came to me in writing the book. To work out what it means for blessings to be efficacious, we really do have to have quite a clear sense of what we think they're setting out to do the standard by which we measure them. And so, if we were silly enough to think that blessing things were supposed to make them glow in the dark, then we would have a very particular, and I think rather disappointing, standard for measuring their effectiveness. And I think I've shown just how wide the sense is of what blessings are about. They're about praise, recognition, thanksgiving, response to sin, reorientation, Recognition and conferral of a vocation. I've not talked very much about that, but I think it's quite important. Recognition and conferral of a vocation. And it is against all of those that we have to judge as well what it means for a blessing to be efficacious. And to ignore all of that because it's somehow not supernatural enough is, I think, to get the relationship between nature and grace all wrong. So bringing it back to our own lives and experience. The way most of us encounter blessing in the usual cycle of things is at the end of a service. It's there at the end, uh, as an end and as a beginning. It's right that our church gathering should end with a blessing, because blessing is God's plan for the end of all things. But that moment at the end of worship is also a beginning. It's blessing as dedication, as consecration, to God's service as we go back into the world around us. It's rather typical that our Anglican tradition should preserve the traditions of medieval Christianity, but initially in rather a chastened, cut down sort of way. And if we look at post-Reformation liturgies, we don't see much to blessing beyond that. I've given a couple of examples. I suppose the service of thanksgiving after childbirth in the prayer book is also a, has the characteristics of blessing. But if the post-Reformation traditions are characteristically spare, then it's also typical that the Oxford Movement should have dug back and rediscovered others. And typically, that many have gained widespread use and acceptance across the Church of England today, not least in our official liturgies. We might think of the blessing of Advent wreaths and Christmas cribs, of ash on Ash Wednesday, of palms on Palm Sunday, of holy oils on Monday, Thursday, or the Easter candle on Easter night, which is to put some of them in the order of the church year, which is the approach that I took when I have a chapter on surveying the many things and people and places that might be blessed in and by the church. If you're interested in blessings uh, more than you were before, you'll find that survey in the book. But we might start modestly. Maybe don't start with the blessing of throats on the 3rd of February, for instance. And for that modest start, I have a few modest proposals. The first is to enter into the ways that blessing already impinges on us, but in a more fully intentional way. That's often at the end of a service, and one way to acknowledge a blessing is to make the sign of the cross over ourselves. Anyway, that's the old way, that's the established way of saying, yes, I grab a hold of this, I recognize it, I accept it, and I thank God for it. Beyond that, maybe the next way to integrate blessing more deeply into our lives is by saying grace before meals. We might do that in a kind of free-form extemporaneous way, or we might memorize some classic form of words. Beyond that, the blessing of a new home is a beautiful thing to do, and it might be that it's worth getting to know the ancient prayer for blessing a journey called the itinerarium. It's a particularly good way to start a pilgrimage or a church trip. Blessings have been part of the way in which Christians down the ages have lived their lives intentionally before God. They stand at the meeting of ways of so many parts of the Christian faith. I hope that I might have piqued your interest in blessing today and that you will want to consider how this part of the practice of the church could be an opening for recognition and prayer, thanksgiving and praise, offering and dedication, protection and redemption, celebration and proclamation. Thank you.
0: Well, Andrew, thank you very much indeed. We have a good 20 minutes for questions and answers. Perhaps I might begin while you're thinking of your questions. Um, How, with a kind of renewed understanding of blessing and mindful that the liturgies of our church are kind of rethinking blessing, I was was curious as to whether you thought the liturgies were going in the right direction or in a slightly different, I mean, I know from my own experience in Scotland, writing new liturgies that the issue of blessing has led to a lot of conversations, how do we bless, how do we bless things in such a way which doesn't imply that they were impure for example as you mentioned and I know that when we were writing a new marriage uh, liturgy we were particularly exercised about whether or not we should bless rings Uh, and we were concerned that we didn't want to detract from the giving of rings from the idea that you know, the, the giving of rings was indeed the real act of blessing. So we emitted a blessing of rings, and it wasn't very popular. So we had to kind of put it back in an appendix. So I'm just curious as to where you think we're going with liturgies, in the right.
1: Well, the picture here is to place the Church of England within a, a wider story uh, of the Christian West in the second half of the 20th century. I think we're definitely going in the right direction in terms of extent. I mean, um, if you look at the many many volumes of common worship you'll find uh blessing of almost everything you can imagine you know ploughs, for instance and that sort of thing um in terms of the way in which the prayers are cast mm, i'm quite critical in the book it's one of the more um controversial parts i think Uh, and that's not really to criticize the church of england but actually the wider western tradition and i suppose it it comes from developments in the roman catholic church uh, just before and, and during and after the second vatican council um, because there was, a kind of unwar- there was a kind of wariness about blessing, which I think fits in with that story I was telling about putting the emphasis uh, too much on uh, the sacraments at the exclusion of everything else. Uh, so one of the things that you get is a debate about whether you can really bless things, um, kind of ignoring the fact that Jesus does it in the, in the Gospels. Uh, and we see that in some of our uh, prayers, for instance. I think the prayers for the blessing of the oils at Maundy Thursday are an example. I think it's fantastic. It's now part of our standard Maundy Thursday practice that the bishop, the clergy and people gathered to, together should bless the oils. But they don't quite do the job. I mean, they, they pray that those who are anointed with the oils might be blessed. And I think at a time when the church has such an important message to say about the holiness, sanctity, value of, of physical things, for instance, in terms of our uh, commitment to Ecology in the protection of the Earth. I just think that kind of uh, f- fails at the last hurdle a, a little bit, falls at the last hurdle. So I suggest in the book, um, if you come across a prayer that doesn't quite bless what it's supposed to be blessing, then make it into a- use it as a kind of wonderful theological preface to the blessing, and then say, "And I bless this oil," you know, or something like that. Um, uh, so I think that's a very that's a very good question, and I talk about it at a reasonable length. I think.
0: Yes. Um,
1: it's
2: linked to that, really. Um, I, I was interested, you tossed in a remark uh, about um, blessing the home, but uh, you did not put it quite as a question, do we bless the, the, the new large plasma television? Yeah. And I suddenly thought, has this twanged back to to the dualism right. again? And I I, I, I wonder, well, was that a sort of provocative remark? Um, because I guess we've now all has television
1: stuff, I certainly do. Um, it's very yeah. difficult
2: to get a CRT television. Yes, yep. yeah. 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 Um, uh, and if you have a big house, then for good vision, then mm-hmm. you need a bigger mm-hmm. one. And so I was describing what you said after that, trying to think about that. I just wondered if, um, I suppose the question is that this dualism business is very tricky. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wondered if you were putting in a sort of slight jealousy of I thought of those very big plasma televisions um, into the into, into the thought or or what? I'm sorry, it's a rather muddled.
1: No, well, I think you know my television is probably uh, larger than the median-sized television, so I, I wasn't an act of envy on my part. Um, I think it was uh, it was in the context of saying that the practice of blessing, the way we do it, isn't. Uh, somehow cut off from the gospel message, and I wanted to say the fact that we uh, bless the the basic communal uh, aspects of life in a way that we wouldn't go out of our way to bless luxuries has a kind of countercultural aspect to it. I mean, no more than that. Maybe dualism always uh, lurks at the door. I think it's also interesting that we would tend uh, to to bless, for instance, um, say religious, you know, monks and nuns who have who, who've given up everything. They they're consecrated. They receive the highest form of uh, of blessing. Um, whereas those who are um, doing maybe quite well paid jobs don't tend to have special services of blessing in, in the church. Not that I want to uh, disregard those jobs. I'm just saying there's something I think uh, of the gospel and countercultural about the what we bless and what we don't put particular emphasis on. As also about the things that we refuse uh, to bless point blank. Thank you.
2: literary understanding uh indirectly derived from the scriptural of understanding of blessing bless you my friend or bless you if somebody gives you something which implies um, you know thankfulness gratitude as opposed to the blessing blessings uh, confirmed by Jesus so, himself. Uh, I
1: Okay, so that was a question about uh, if God blesses, does that mean that, that human beings perhaps working as sort of mediators uh, can, can bless? Um, and here there would clearly be a distinction between different kinds of, of church tradition. Um, and maybe uh, some of the more Protestant churches have been more wary of that sense of uh, mediation and other churches uh, of which my own the Church of England, in a kind of cautious way, uh, have been more enthusiastic about ideas of, uh, of mediation. Um, it seems to me, as St. Teresa of Avila said, you know, who, what are God's hands today in the world? They're our hands. Our, our feet are the feet by which uh, he, he walks uh, among us. And, um, you know, we're, we're happy... We say that Jesus is the great high priest who prays for us, but we're happy to pray for one another. And clearly, God is the one um, who, who blesses, But um, God is the one who teaches, but we have teachers within the church. God is our leader, but we have leaders within the church. Personally, personally, I think it's uh, important that we... It would be a kind of dualism, I think, to say that because uh, something belongs to God, it can't belong to his people because he gathers us into into, uh, his work. Now, I would say that the problem there can be to make blessing too much of a clerical thing. Uh, only a clerical thing, and it's one of the things um, I talk about a bit in the book. Who is the minister of blessing? Uh, and here, I think one of the helpful things in the twentieth century was to uh, recover the sense in which it's uh, the vocation of all Christian people to to bless. And I. You know, it's not something the Church of England would write about, particularly we don't issue dogmatic statements about who can bless and who can't, but the sense from the Roman Catholic Church, and I think this is quite a, a wise one, is that um, each person blesses within the, the field, the, the remit, the arena that, that belongs to them. So there's a beautiful old tradition of parents blessing their children, for instance. Um, and we need to work out what that means in the 21st century, but um, I think it's, it's right to say this isn't just the preserve of, uh, of the clergy.
0: Actually, it's exactly what I want to say. Every time a called Andy Ray is based in Lindisfarne. and his great message is, instead of
2: saying goodbye, you should say, God bless you, because that's the origin of goodbye. We've actually lost
0: that. But I want to actually ask you, I come from the Catholic tradition, I don't know much about the Pentecostals. Who actually does the blessing there?
1: Uh, well, I want to talk about uh, those traditions uh, not really ex- as examples of liturgical blessing. I have a period of my own life when I um, was a member of a church like that. I don't think that anything like a sort of um, bestowed blessing or anything liturgical was particularly important. I wanted to bring it up because of the way in which the talk of material blessings can be very prominent in those churches. And I wanted to say, if there are criticisms, let's not be too glib in our criticism, and um, if people are finding in those churches uh, a real response to their um, poverty and need, then for every criticism that we offer, we should also offer a a practical commitment to poverty ourselves.
2: Yes. (laughs) Seventy years ago, millions killed, thousands killed, and the whole of Europe was uh, a refugee camp. Seventy years now, we have a refugee problem. Germany and Austria are taking thousands in, so could they be blessed now? Could they have earned a blessing now for the Humanity Acts instead of the inhumanity acts of the past?
1: Um, well, that's a, a fascinating question. I. I We'd be inclined to say that we interact and show our faith and our relationship to God as much through our actions as our words. Um, I think of of Abraham, who's held up to us as the great example of faith. And why is he an example of faith? Because he was willing to set out uh, on that great journey, because he was uh, willing to contemplate offering his own son. So um, I think that Uh, we should think about those passages in the Bible where Jesus says, nobody who offers a glass of water to someone will fail to receive a reward. No one who who, uh, binds up the brokenhearted, no one who feeds the hungry or or, or takes in the homeless um, will fail to receive the reward that comes from doing that even to himself. So absolutely, we should have those passages ringing in our ears, I think, at this moment in in history. And uh, I hadn't thought about it up till now as a question of, Blessing and being blessed, but I think that's probably pretty useful language.
2: Yes, sir. Thank you. Particularly uh, thank you for the words of the Christmas. i uh, <laughs> uh, you, you,
0: you spoke about the etymology of blessing in Latin
2: and in Greek. I wonder if you have anything to say about the etymology of the word blessing in English.
1: Mm. Well, as I. Uh, Remember, I think the blessing, etymology of blessing in English and goes back through Anglo-Saxon to the word for blood, I think. Um, and of course we get that connection in the Old Testament with the sense of sprinkling of blood and the ashes of a heifer and that sort of thing. Um, I'm not sure I've got very much theologically to say about it, except I suppose that the we would say that the wellspring of, of blessing uh, is the, the death and resurrection of Christ, so that's a connection with uh, with blood. The connection between sacrifice and forgiveness of sins kind of brings in that redemption element, I suppose. I guess there's a lot to run with here, isn't there? Um, uh, but I'm not sure that I wrote about it at any great length, but it's a good, it's a good question. And in Hebrew, um, the... I, I do talk about that a fair bit because of the ambivalence of the of the word in in uh, Hebrew, because it, it leans both towards bless and curse. Um, and uh, actually, some, there's a Greek a Greek word, the Greek word behind anathema, seems to have the same kind of uh, duality to it. And um, and I thought I'd better put a, a chapter in about curses and the way in which you respond to to cursing, um, because. Uh, it might not be central to our experience, you know, everyone in this room, but it is something that people uh, come across. And um, I remember, teach. I used to be a doctrine teacher and uh, asking about uh, how how redemption works, and I got all these, you know, all, all the kind of standard models. Uh, and someone said um, he hung upon a tree as cursed to retrieve the the curse that lay upon us all, which is from Galatians, I think. Um, and I thought, wow, I wasn't expecting that one. So um, Yeah, there's a a bit about uh, curse and our response to it uh, and the ambivalence of some of those words uh, in a chapter.
2: I would like to go back a little bit. Uh, Could you say something on how... um, the act of blessing of lay people could be encouraged a little bit more? Because I find it often... uh, blessing
1: is very much restricted to the clergy. So it's just be blessing by lay people. Sorry? Blessing by peop- lay people, yeah. Um, well, I reckon uh, grace and blessing food is the is, you know, a pretty central example. How many of us do it? You know, it might not be everything, but it's a pretty pretty uh, good way uh, to start. Um, The Orthodox tradition has a beautiful prayer to be undertaken before any exercise or labor, and there are other traditions of prayers to be said, uh, asking for God's blessing before different kinds of um, activity. I I want to say, on the one hand, it's a great thing for us to explore. I also don't want to say that the only way in which uh, non-priests and deacons and bishops exercise some kind of ministry of blessing is by um, performing liturgical functions. I mean, there's a way, I think, in which we can think about the ministry of, uh, of the whole people of God in a way that can be quite clericalizing, and so it's also important to say that maybe the chief way in which the whole people of God uh, are involved in a ministry of blessing is by uh, t- tending and, and laboring and, and caring and you know fructifying uh, the, wor- the world through our labors and and caring for children and that kind of thing. So uh, I think there's a, it is really important to think what liturgical role is there for the whole people of God, but I think it could be in danger of saying, well, oh, that would be what it means to bless, whereas actually the people who, um, who, who, who work in the world and, uh, and, and bring up families and so on, I mean, that's the kind of heart, really, of, the, of much of the Christian ministry of blessing. Is,
0: is there a kind of tension between kind of the m- the moment of blessing and kind of over time. So, for example, with the church, we would always recognise that when we build a church, that we bless it, we consecrate it. Mm-hmm. But I think we would also want to say that the church is truly hallowed and blessed by the prayers of people mm-hmm. over time. I mean, that's a tension that's there in all liturgy, but is it, I, mean, I wonder if that explains why there's sometimes a kind of ambivalence about kind of not wanting to say, we bless this now, because we're kind of mindful of something happening over time.
1: Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I didn't talk so much about the idea of vocation and the, the way that there's some kind of recognizing something, but also conferring a vocation. And I guess I'm just, I'd be enthusiastic about full blooded examples of both, you know. So yeah. do, do bless things, but then also, um, I suppose, the cycle of the year. I mean, you, you give the example of the church. We have the Feast of Dedication once once a year yes. when it's either the Feast, it's either the, close to the time when the church actually was consecrated or, you know better than I do, it falls in October or November otherwise, yes. does it? Yes. Um, November probably, is that right? Um, and so you have a, a yearly picking up and just as um, uh, you're only baptised once but we have the yearly um, re- renewal of baptismal vows or um, you're only, you, know, you don't remarry a couple that are married, but they might find it useful to, to renew their vows. Um, and of course one way, just if we talked about this in preaching for instance, would be one way of um, uh, bringing the past and the, the, the status of things now back to mind. Yeah. So, uh, i really enjoy the
0: lecture, by
1: the
0: way. Um, I wonder if you could say
2: something Mm-hmm. or to the you know, patriarchal fathers who blessed their children, like Joseph over his sons, mm-hmm. and so on. They seem to be connected
1: to the Lord in a particular way that uh, they were given
2: insight as to what would happen. Mm-hmm. They were actually called on to this
1: Think about there, but one would be that there's a there's something of a distinction going on there between um, the the order of creation and then uh, something that that comes through the the, the church. So you mean, um, one might recognise the parents blessing their children as something that's just conferred upon us in the very you know act of being human and, and created, and then the other things are conferred to the church as a whole, and different churches will disagree about how this is, but my own would say that um, certain authority is given to the church as a whole, and then that is um, uh, passed on and represented by certain people, the bishops, and that they can then confer that authority upon, upon others. So there's both, you'd, I'd say there's, an, there's a layer that is w- what we are by virtue of creation, and then for some people, there's something that the church has, as a whole has conferred upon them uh, particularly, so there are both of those orders there. I'd, personally, I would probably talk about <coughs> authority rather than power. I think that's um, it's probably better to say that someone's given authority to bless rather than power to bless. And there are lots of fantastic medieval discussions about this kind of thing. So um, there's a big rift in the 13th century about. Um, it's often worked out in terms of the the Eucharist. Does God um, give the power to the priest to uh, confect the sacraments of the Eucharist. Or on one end, that would be the kind of, uh, more, I guess, too magical account where you just get this power. The other would be to say, the priest has nothing to do with it. The priest saying the words is just the occasion that God uses to do the thing. And I, as in most things, uh, think Thomas Aquinas gets it right because he says the priest really is involved, the person really is involved, but he says, like God's instrument. Um, so, it's not something that um, is kind of, I can alienate to myself like some power that you have separate from God, but neither am I more or less incidental in it, and God's just using my actions as an occasion. It's kind of, God takes up what we are uh, and works through us. So, I, I could point you to some of those uh, the- theological debates, but it's a great question. Ex opera
2: or ex opere
1: Yes. Yeah, that would be a distinction between uh, sacraments and and other rites.
0: Maybe we've got to have one more, and then
2: I just wonder whether the colloquial use of the word "bless" Mm -hmm. really is different to what we've been discussing as blessings, or really whether it's something that we has been assimilated into our everyday life.
1: If someone sneezes and you say "bless you," I mean, I know that. The the plague, probably, yes. (laughs) Yes, you know.
0: Yeah. But you know, a higher level of thank you. We might say, bless you.
1: you Yes. Um,
2: It's benevolent. Mm -hmm.
1: I think you probably have to treat it on a case-by-case case basis, but my, my my attitude would be to say, um, let's be glad for what there is, and let's try and kind of gather up the fragments and uh, uh, you know and, and and connect them to the faith. Um, there is a kind of colloquial use of uh, of the word bless, isn't there, which seems to me often quite sort of uh, cond- condescending, you know, or uh, uh, I, I, don't, I think that's probably quite far away from uh, Christian uh, Christian usage. But there are other people I think who say, uh, bless you, and they mean those words right from the heart. So I'd just say the message for all of us is to to think about how this part of the life of the church, which isn't the most important part of the life of the church but is there, um, can be ever more intentionally and fruitful part of our own experience
0: and practice. Andrew, thank you so much for uh, being with us today and for all your thoughts and insights. And can I thank you all for coming as well. Andrew's books will be on sale here at the front and He will, I know, be happy to sign them for you. Uh, Our brand new programme of events is available here at the front. You may notice from this leaflet that we have changed our name from the St Paul's Forum to Adult Learning, but the programme and the aims of the department remain the same. Let me tell you about two events we have coming up. Our next Sunday Forum will be on the 4th of October at one o'clock and uh, Gillian Strain will be talking about science and religion from her own experiences and expertise as both a scientist and a priest. She will offer us ways of understanding the conflict between holding together belief in God with a rich understanding and respect for science. And on Tuesday the 29th of September from 6.30 in the evening till 8 o'clock, Steve uh, Chalk will talk on being human. It's easy for us to go through life without ever really considering what we're here for and who we want to be. And Steve Chalk suggests that God calls each one of us to play our part in his plan for a just and loving world. And it's finding our place in that story that will shape us and our lives into everything that we're meant to be. And we have further details of these events on a sheet at the front. And of course, as ever, you can find information about all that's happening on the St Paul's Cathedral website. Thank you all.